Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported show. To support it, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Translation is an art. And if you've ever read anything that was directly, literally translated from its original language and into English, you know how kind of weird it can sound? It doesn't sound natural. Uh, when I lived in Japan, I could often tell when somebody was, you know, taking a bunch of vocabulary words that they knew in Japanese, literally translating them into English in their head, and then just spitting them out into a Japanese grammatical structure, but with English words. And it sounded strange to me, a native speaker. Likewise, I'm sure that my own attempts to speak Japanese were often constrained and, let's say, informed by my status as a native English speaker. Um, I am sure, in fact, I know that I often sounded strange when I was speaking a language that was not my own, because my own speech, then, was way too informed by literal translation. You got, you got to get over that. So when translating a text, the translator has to take something that sounds natural and good in one language and make it sound natural and good in a different language. And that requires discretion on their part. That requires them to make decisions. Likewise, editing is also something of an art. Um, when I've written for newspapers, I've often noticed that the copy I turned in was made different, was changed by an editor. Uh, they often massaged it, shortened it, or otherwise condensed it. Occasionally, editors would add their you know, own extra details or parentheticals, um, all of that. Nowadays, I'm a copywriter at a marketing company, and a big part of what I do for my day job is taking client copy for websites, blogs, social media, whatever, and tightening the screws on it, making it all work. So when you're editing, you have to use your discretion. You can't just be a machine. You have to tap into something that's kind of sort of aesthetic. Even so, when you're translating or editing, it is still your task to serve the original text and to try to clarify and understand what the original author was doing. In a way, translators and editors are intermediaries. They connect an author to their audience. It's their job to be, you know, a bridge, a connection, all of that. It is not really their job to get into the original text and do their own thing. Unless, of course, your Icelandic author and translator, Valdemar Asmundsen, one of the first people to get his hands on and translate Bram Stoker's Dracula. And when he did that, Asmundsen turned it into something completely new and his own. The book, Macht Mirkrana, or Powers of Darkness in English, is one of the earliest variations on Dracula. It was first serialized in Asmundsen's newspaper in 1899, and it was hiding in plain sight until just a few years ago, until 2013. For over a century, everyone thought that it was just a translation of Dracula. But an intrepid bilingual person, Hans Cornel de Roos, he picked up Machtmirkrana after having read the English-language version of Dracula and noticed that there were some alterations. So now, after over a century, 
a completely different, very, very, very early version of Bram Stoker's novel has come to us. And again, I mean very early. The original Dracula was published in 1897. Osmondson started publishing this translation in serial form in 1899. He may very well be the first person to riff on Dracula for us, who again, I said in the last episode, is more of a character type than a character. So, this book, Powers of Darkness, Macht Mirkrana, how is it different from the original Dracula? Well, it's divided into two sections, and the first section will be pretty familiar to fans of the original Stoker novel. Stoker's Dracula begins with a young lawyer named Jonathan Harker arriving at the Count's Transylvanian castle in the Borgo Pass. Osmondson's version is very much the same, but in this one, Harker is named Thomas rather than Jonathan for some reason. And for the most part, everything you might remember from this section of Stoker's Dracula is here. Harker arrives in Transylvania, the locals tell him to stay away from Dracula's castle, he goes there anyway, he's there to help the Count purchase property in London, which the Count does. Um, later on, stuff gets weird, and Harker realizes that he is in fact a prisoner in this creepy old castle in the middle of nowhere. And all of that happens in Maktamir Krana too. And there's some extra stuff. Uh, for instance, in Stoker's novel, Dracula's castle is only inhabited by the Count and a trio of sexy lady vampires. In Maktamir Krana, though, Dracula has a few castlemates. For instance, he has a servant, an old woman who is both deaf and mute, and she takes care of all of the uh, domestic stuff around the castle. And that's not big of a departure, really. I guess, you know, if you have a large house to take care of, it's pretty hard to keep up with all the vacuuming and dusting. Uh, I live in a normal-sized house, and I find it difficult enough. That Dracula would have, like, a housekeeper, butler, whatever, sort of makes sense. Again, he's nobility. He has a castle. He's not going to sweep all of that himself. He also has some undead companionship, but instead of a trio of vampire ladies, he has a single vampiric companion. And in Stoker's Dracula, his three undead lady friends are all portrayed as animalistic blood monsters who totally want to eat and devour Jonathan Harker, but like in a sexy way. And that's also the case with the Countess in Asmundson's version. But here it's a whole big involved thing. There's this whole subplot about, like, temptation and Jonathan Harker meeting this, like, mysterious woman in the moonlight. And you know what? I'm just going to read to you from the novel. Here's how she makes her entrance. Quote, Harker is narrating, by the way. I bowed and said in my best German, Please forgive me, miss. I was expecting the count. As I said this, she moved closer to me and replied in German with traces of an exotic accent. You are the foreigner we were expecting. Be welcome. It is lonely in the castle. Lonely in these mountains. Her voice was curiously clear. It felt as though the sound of her words pierced my every nerve, but I was not sure whether it was a pleasant or unpleasant feeling. All I knew was that she caressed some strings within me that before had been untouched, and it flustered me quite a bit. I felt my heartbeat quicken, as if I had a fever. I'm not quick to be overcome by women. In fact, I'm considered rather impassive and reserved. And since I was a boy, I have never loved anyone else but my Wilma. Oh, by the way, in this version, Mina Harker is Wilma. For some reason. But as I watched this woman while she spoke to me, I couldn't take my eyes off her. 
She stood in front of me in the moonlight, and I couldn't recall ever seeing a girl of such breathtaking beauty. I won't provide a detailed description, as words can do her no justice. But she had golden blonde hair, which was bound in a shingon. Her eyes were blue and large. Her dress resembled those worn by beauty icons from the turn of the century like Queen Josephine, with her neck and upper chest revealed. Around her neck she wore a necklace of glittering diamonds. You admire the view, she said. They say our mountains are beautiful. Indeed they are. But they are so barren, so barren. Here one lives like a prisoner, waiting to go out into the world, to the big world, to men. There are no men here, and I am so fond of men. She reached out as she said this, as if overcome, and her eyes appeared to flash in the moonlight. Unquote. By the way, that has one of my favorite sort of like jokey, dumb, bad writing, literary device things in it. It's like, I dare not describe it. Words can't describe this thing. Here, now I'm going to talk about it at length in this really overwrought way. Yeah, so Harker then spends a whole lot of time in the novel wringing his hands over this mysterious woman that he keeps seeing in the castle in the moonlight, and he finds himself again venturing to the upper floors, to the castle's portrait gallery, where she lives, or rather, unlives, and then feels really, really guilty for letting a strange woman kiss his neck again and again. And he constantly writes in his journal that he feels bad for betraying his fiancée, and he goes on and on about temptation and longing like a good gothic protagonist, and, well, here's some more of it. Whether I am awake or sleeping, she haunts me, this strange creature. She scares me, and yet she attracts my thoughts harder and harder. I don't understand how I have changed, how I have become crazed and obsessed. And later... I felt her soft body in my arms, and she wrapped hers around me so tightly that I could hardly breathe. I can still feel how she pressed her lips to my neck with a long, quivering kiss. It was as if I melted and lost all awareness, as if time and space dissolved. Oh my, um, that must have been, like, really super hot way back in 1900. Actually, it's still kind of hot now in 2017. That is as goofy and amazing and vampiric sexy as anything from an Anne Rice novel. No, wait. That is as goofy and vampiric sexy as anything from a Twilight novel. That is amazing. So that's there. But the whole thing with, like, Harker having temptation and guilt in the moonlight, all of that is a small addition compared to how Asmundson changes Dracula himself. Now, in the original novel, Dracula just wants to move to London and bite people. Mostly, Dracula likes biting lady people, though sometimes dudes like Jonathan Harker. I guess it depends with him. But in Powers of Darkness, he's less about the whole, like, sexy blood temptation and more about being a supervillain. So think for a moment about, you know, Dracula and think about, like, how loquacious you imagine him being. And when you think about how Dracula, you know, emotes and communicates, you probably think of a character who says a lot more with his expressions and body language than with, you know, words. Uh, Bela Lugosi in particular said a lot with a stare, with a gesture, with how he looked and how he moved. And that was really effective. That is a really, really good way to do a character type like Dracula. Asmundson doesn't do that. Instead, Dracula is a full-on monologuing supervillain. He talks about stuff like being descended from Attila the Hun. He says, quote, 
We believe that our kin descended from the ancient Huns, who once swept across Europe like wildfire, destroying nations and their people. As the story goes, the Huns were the descendants of the Scythian witches who had been banished to the woods, where they commingled with the demons. These tales, of course, are like any other of their sort, but it is known that no demon or wizard has ever been greater or more powerful than Attila, our ancestor. Therefore, it is not surprising that we, his descendants, hate and love more passionately than any other mortals. Unquote. Also, uh, he kind of sort of believes in eugenics. At one point, he says, quote, Artistry, prowess, wisdom, and beauty, all of that is power. It is passed on from one generation to the next, my good friend. Nature is always working. It is constantly trying to produce something more refined, squandering much material, selecting and rejecting. That which is inferior contributes its part, and then it is discarded like trash. Unquote. So that's weird. On more than one occasion, uh, Dracula talks about how he wants to be a player on the world stage. He says, quote, I live here now like an old hermit in the house of my ancestors. I live in hoary memories, but I also observe what happens in the outside world, hearing merely the echo of it here in this deserted corner of the earth. You might find it surprising that, although my hair is white, my heart is young, and it wants to take part in life outside these castle walls, where the destinies of nations are forged and the wars of this world are fought. I once played a role in this game and pulled quite a few strings. To rule, my young friend, to rule, that is the only thing worth living for, whether it be over people's wills or their hearts. Unquote. And later on, he also says, quote, With tireless dedication, everything is finally set for the great revolution. Our cause acquires new followers every day. Those of mankind who are chosen have suffered for far too long under unbearable oppression, bigotry, the shame of majority rule. We have outgrown these slave morals and will soon reach the point where we can preach the message of freedom. The world must bow before the strong ones, unquote. And, oh my god, that last one makes Dracula sound like some just terrible Reddit commenter who, like, read the genealogy of morals by Nietzsche and, like, didn't understand it. Note to self, someday do an episode about how everyone misinterprets Nietzsche. Anyway, those are Dracula's motivations. Um, he wants to overthrow the democratically elected governments of Europe. Like, that's his thing. He wants to change the world order. He doesn't just want to, like, live in London and be spooky and drink blood and enjoy himself. He is a supervillain. And that's not all. That is not the only supervillainish thing that Dracula does in this novel. He also has an underground gorilla cult. As Harker moves through the castle, he eventually finds a chamber filled with ape-like worshippers whom he describes, quote, Below me was a mass of people, men and women in separate groups. There might have been 150 people together. Never have I seen faces with such distinct animalistic features. I refer to them as such because they are the kind of traits we find to be normal in other creatures, but we think them repulsive in humans. It was as though I could, to some extent, recognize the faces, but I couldn't immediately recall where I'd seen them. But after some further thought, I realized I'd seen similar features in Count Dracula's family portraits, 
when I try to recall the impressions their appearances made on me, I remember they seemed more diabolical than beast-like. In front of a large marble staircase where I saw that six brutes were sitting, they were even more ape-like than the rest. They were perched on their heels and were staring at the wall on the other side. I saw the hateful characteristics, so evident in the faces of others, were multiplied in these individuals. Their foreheads were receding, wrinkled and barely an inch high. Straw-like hair grew from their big heads. Their necks were like that of a bull, and they had very broad shoulders. All six were stark naked, revealing their tan and very hairy bodies. Unquote. And like when I say gorilla coat, I'm not exaggerating, because Harker, or Osmundson, uh, describes these ape-like beings as gorillas, and he goes into about how they have this big sacrifice, they kill a human, there's blood everywhere, and Dracula in front of a whole bunch of chanting, creepy, gorilla cult members, then spreads a bunch of blood on himself, and just, wow. Later on, Harker says, It isn't mere fabrication by theologists that hell exists, for it is right here on earth. I have personally stood at its border and seen the devils carry out their work. Perhaps next time it will be my turn to be slaughtered on that stone slab, unquote. So that's all great. And part one of the novel, which is much, much longer than the Dracula Castle section in Stoker's novel, is the bulk of Mactamir Krana. Whereas in Stoker's book, that's just a prelude to a bunch of other stuff. Here, most of it is creepy castle action. And that ends with Thomas Harker realizing he's a prisoner and decides that he needs to escape. Now, I enjoyed the first part of Powers of Darkness, as trashy and overwrought as it was. Um, I enjoyed it on about the same level that I enjoyed the Underworld movies. So I was sort of excited for part two of the novel, which happens in London with Dracula doing Draculonic things. Part two is sadly not nearly as good as part one. When you think of Bram Stoker's novel, you probably think of things like Harker, Dr. Seward, Quincy, the cowboy fellow, and Van Helsing all working together to pursue the Count through London. You probably remember that Dracula, he stalked Lucy, he turned her into a vampire, uh, ultimately they had to stake her, and it was all tragic and stuff. And later on, Dracula tries to make some attempts on Mina Harker as well. Now, that is most of Stoker's Dracula, and now in Stoker's novel, that whole section, from the end of Jonathan Harker's stay in Castle Dracula to the end of the novel, it is 137,860 words. Now, that's decently long. That is longer than some other novels. Osmundson takes all that. He takes the bulk, the majority, of the original work, and he condenses it all down to a mere 9,100 words. That is a reduction of 93%. So, this whole work is basically boiled down to a short story. And honestly, it doesn't make for good reading. I'm not going to quote any of it because it's rushed and terrible. And where part one is lavish and slow and full of exciting details about sexy moonlight vampires and blood cults and Dracula going on like a Reddit commenter, part two feels like that you're listening to someone merely describe the end of Dracula. And a big part of this is that Osmundson pretty much jettisons the original narrative conceit of Dracula. 
that novel was made up of journals, letters, newspaper articles, and the like. Um, what is kind of cool about it is that when you look at the original novel, it's kind of like somebody has handed you the Dracula dossier. It's kind of like somebody gave you a bunch of primary sources about the Dracula incident, and then you, like an intrepid researcher or historian or journalist or whatever, you know, get to dig through that. At least, I like that. And Asmundson gets rid of all of that in favor of an omniscient narrator who's just trying to get to the end of the story as fast as possible. Um, even amidst all of that, Asmundson does put Dracula at the head of a bunch of evil nobles and aristocrats who seem intent on destroying the democratic governments of Europe, but it's not handled well or interestingly. And then, and then Van Helsing kills Dracula, the end. But where did this thing come from? Now, there are a few possibilities. The first possibility for the origins of Powers of Darkness, Makhtamakrana, is the simplest, and that's that Osmundson was working independently and took liberties with the text because he felt like it. Maybe he just felt like the book wasn't sexy enough, it needed a guerrilla cult, that Dracula needed to be a supervillain, and given that he was serializing it, it's possible that either he, his readers, or some authorities at the newspaper just lost interest in continuing the story, hence the rushed nature of the ending. It's also possible that Asmundson was working from an unfinished version of Stoker's novel, though that's improbable. It would mean that Asmundson somehow got a hold of an early version of Dracula, possibly from Stoker himself, and translated that into Mactmirkrana. Now, apparently Stoker did go through several versions of Dracula before coming onto the finished book, and a lot of those early versions were very different. One of Stoker's early versions of Dracula ended with Dracula's castle being destroyed by a volcano. And it's possible that Osmundson had one of those. Somehow. Possible, but maybe not probable. Or, maybe, Stoker was in on it. In the foreword for the English-language version of Makhtamirkrana, one of his relatives says as much. Dakre Stoker writes, quote, I feel safe in saying Brahm was not only aware of the differences between Dracula and the Icelandic edition, I believe he orchestrated them. The deviations from the 1897 Constable edition cannot result from translation errors or even from a liberal interpretation of the original alone. The changes are too significant. The Icelandic preface and the modified plot are interconnected in a way that points toward Brahm writing both. In my opinion, Makhtamakrana is another version or draft of Dracula written by Brahms sometime during the 1890s. I don't believe it was originally written for the Icelandic market, but I can well imagine that Brahm used the translation process as an opportunity to make Makhtamakrana unique and more relevant to Icelandic interest. Unquote. Maybe. We can't prove that. Bram Stoker has not been a um, helpful author in illuminating his process, Whereas lots of other authors took extensive notes and had correspondence and journals and we have extant versions of their work and drafts and all that. Um, we have that for Stoker as well, but he's a lot more terse in his correspondence and his notes and journal keeping. So it's really not entirely clear uh, whether or not this was something he did. Um, I'm inclined to believe Osmondson just made it all up. 
I mean, that's the simplest explanation. But all of this plays into my earlier contention that Dracula is a character type more so than a character. He's an icon. And he can be adapted, changed, and used for all kinds of purposes. And I think the Dracula in Makhtamakrana in some ways kind of works. Dracula can indeed be both a symbol of personal horror, who will tempt you to go into darkness because you're drawn into it somehow, but he can also be a monologuing supervillain speaking in all kinds of purple prose and at the head of a gorilla cult. I mean, come on. I mean, if any of you guys have ever played the very good video game, Castlevania Symphony of the Night, you know that one of Dracula's best lines ever is, What is a man? A miserable little pile of secrets. And it works. Having Dracula as a scenery-chewing supervillain totally works. And Dracula first started iterating and mutating and changing and becoming a Dracula rather than just one Dracula very early on, up in the frozen north of Iceland. And only very tangentially related to any of this, here is the time warp in Icelandic. Happy Halloween, everyone. Tune <laughs> 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 